Good morning. We are in this uh, book of Revelation, and I know we have some uh, new uh, people visiting with us here this morning. Just so that you know, uh, the style of teaching here is a verse-by-verse style of teaching. We're in the book of Revelation right now, going through it verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, and it's uh, that's the style of teaching here at Calvary Chapel. So we've been in this journey now for a number of weeks. All of these messages are recorded on our website. You can go or it does also show on Facebook Live. But you can listen to any of these messages in audio. If you've missed them or you're wanting to uh, get some of the studies that you haven't heard, you can go to our website and you can find them there. We, uh, as I started out this book of Revelation, I asked us all here how many of us were fearful of this book and how many of us were encouraged and excited about the thought of going through the book of Revelation. And I think that there are some, and I believe this is a... uh, a particular book of the Bible that some people have communicated to me uh, through the years that it's a fearful book to get into, the book of Revelation. But there is, I believe, sometimes this happens with Christians, is that it's our lack of understanding. Sometimes it's not having that strong confidence in our relationship that we have with the Lord. That can be another reason why we might be fearful when we're talking about end times events, when we're talking about the Lord returning, when we're talking about coming face to face someday with our Lord, uh, that can be a little intimidating. But we read a verse in 1 John, and you can turn there, 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, John writes this. He says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. And then he says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. You see, that removal of fear when it comes to end times events, when it comes to coming face to face with the Lord, when it comes to the day that we will all kneel before him, it really is removed when we know how much God loves us. We know what price he paid that we could have a relationship with him. And for us to be able to go through the book of Revelation as we're going to start into this sixth chapter, talking about the judgments that are going to be coming upon this earth, I think it's a good time for us to ask ourselves, how much do I know about the love of God for me? That God loves you unconditionally and sacrificially. He gave his life up for you that you might have life. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so as we enter into this sixth chapter of Revelation this morning, I pray that our hearts are stirred with an excitement and a thought that the Lord is coming back. And I think that's a good place to be. I titled this morning's message, The Antichrist and the First Seal. And we're really only going to look, Kyle read through the first eight verses, we're only going to look at the first two, we're going to look at the first seal that is being opened. Let's read it in our Bibles, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud with a voice like thunder, come and see, and look, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering 
to conquer. Chapter 6 of Revelation is what we might say the beginning of the events that are going to transpire during the tribulation period. It's also known as the 70th week of Daniel, a seven-year period of time where God is going to once again intervene into the uh, nation of Israel and his people, the Jewish nation, but he's also going to deal with the Gentile nations also in this world in the form of judgment, but also God's mercy is going to be poured out also during this time because we have already learned that there is going to be a multitude of people that are going to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ during this time. Our God is merciful and gracious and loving towards mankind. But this seven-year tribulation period, uh, how do we have that? Why, do, why is it seven years? One of the key texts that we would look to, to uh, that would tell us that this period is seven years is in the book of Daniel in chapter 9, uh, verse 24 it begins. This is a prophecy that is over uh, close to 500 years old. That it, before Christ came, 500 years before Christ, this prophecy was given to Daniel. And it's within this prophecy, and we're not going to go in depth into it, but I want to give it to you now because we'll be referring back to it periodically as we go through the book of Revelation. So look in your Bibles. If you're not there, I think it'll be on the screen too. At Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. We read that, and this is the prophecy, 70 weeks are determined, and I want you to make note of this, for your people. I believe your people here is speaking of the nation of Israel, the Jew. And for your holy city, which you would want to maybe underline that also, speaking of Jerusalem, that key city for the nation of Israel. And so 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, Jerusalem. This is what's going to be accomplished in these 70 weeks to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That's what's going to be accomplished during this 70 week or this 70th, uh, 70 weeks of Daniel. It goes on in this prophecy, and it says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now, seven weeks is equivalent to 49 years. That is the length of time that it took to rebuild the city of Jerusalem during that uh, time where it was tore down and then rebuilt. 49 years from the time that the command went out to rebuild, 49 years it would take to rebuild. And then it says, and 62 weeks. And that's 434 years. If you take the seven weeks to rebuild and the 62 weeks, you have 69 weeks of this prophecy that have already been fulfilled. When were they fulfilled, those 69? Well, it tells us, it goes on to say, the streets or the streets shall be built again and the walls, speaking about the streets and the wall of Jerusalem there, even in troublesome time. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
Let me back up a little bit. Messiah will be cut off. When was he cut off? He was cut off on the cross. That was really the stopping point for the 69 weeks that were already fulfilled. But then we read that he, uh, but not for himself and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, we know from history that in 70 AD, that Titus came in and destroyed once again Jerusalem, the temple. He tore the city walls down, dismantled the temple stone by stone. And that happened in 70 AD. Then we read in verse 27, then he, and I believe that he that is spoken of here is the Antichrist. It's why I'm reading really this passage for us this morning. He, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many, and notice what he says, for one week. That's seven years. That's why we, when we look at the tribulation period, we say there's a seven-year period of time. It's because of this prophecy that was given to Daniel. Look what he goes on to say. But in the middle of the week, what would be half of seven years? It would be three and a half years. But in the middle of the week, at the three and a half year mark, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. He's talking about the Antichrist. And on the wing of abominations shall be, <clears throat> excuse me, one who makes desolate, even till the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, what we do know from past history is that in 164 BC, Antichus Epiphanes, he desecrated the uh, temple there in Jerusalem by slaughtering a pig and bringing it in and offering it on the altar there in Jerusalem at the temple and brought in his own pagan worship during that time. And some people have even looked at this prophecy and said, well, this prophecy was already fulfilled with Antichus Epiphanes in 164 BC. What we need to understand about prophecy is that there are many prophecies in Scripture that are of a dual fulfillment. How do I know that? You can read many dual fulfillment prophecies in the book of Psalms. You can read it in Isaiah. Psalms speaks much of dual fulfillment even in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I believe that Daniel chapter 9 here is a dual fulfillment. It's a partial fulfillment that was first partially fulfilled because it didn't come until 164 B.C. with Antichus Epiphanes. But it's also going to be fulfilled in the Antichrist at that middle mark in the tribulation period. You can read about... Antichus and the desecration of the temple in Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 to 14. And so that's how we have and why we believe that the seven-year tribulation period is the length of time where God is going to take the 70th week, that last week, the 70th week of Daniel, and start the clock, so to speak. So we have 2,000 years from the time that Christ died on the cross we're almost coming up to the 2,000 year mark since Christ died on the cross. And it's all waiting for that clock to begin. When is the clock going to begin again? Well, we know that the Antichrist, according to verse 27, he's going to confirm a covenant with many. He's going to come and make a covenant with the nation of Israel, a peace agreement. He's going to have some kind of a plan that is going to make sense and it's going to be really deception for the nation of Israel, for the people that are here during this tribulation period. I believe what starts out the seven year tribulation period is going to be when the Antichrist makes that peace agreement with the nation of Israel, <clears throat> a deception that they're going to buy into, many of them. Another important passage 
that we need to understand. And again, we won't have time to exhaust this to get into it in detail. Now we will come back to it at other times. But it has to do with the end times events. It's in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 24, if you could turn there in your Bibles. It's an important passage. We read that Jesus, remember this is the last week that Jesus, before he would go to the cross, Jesus was on the Temple Mount. Jesus was having these dialogues with the religious Pharisees on the Temple Mount that day. He was going to leave the Temple Mount for the last time before he would go to the cross and die on the sin of uh, the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus departed that Temple Mount with his disciples on that day. And as they were walking out of the Temple Mount area, his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And why would they want to show? Well, look at what it says in uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus said this as before, just before he departed the Temple Mount. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But then he says this, but you were not willing. And then he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so here we have the, I believe, the disciples that are disturbed. For Jesus to say that your house is going to be desolate. They knew what Jesus was saying. They knew that he was speaking of the, the temple there. And it, remember that the temple was the pride of Israel. The law, the land, and the temple, that was all the pride of Israel. For Jesus to say those words... I believe, alarmed the disciples. I believe as they left that Temple Mount that day, they were probably had all kinds of questions going through their mind of when this would take place. What Jesus just said to them alarmed them. They were wondering, when will this take place? He goes on and Jesus says to them, do you not see all of these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That alarmed them. This was the pride of Israel. This was the temple. This was the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying not one stone would be left upon another. As they made their way down uh, from the Temple Mount, they would have come up on to the Mount of Olives. They would go down through the Kidron Valley and come up the other side, and they would go over the top of the Mount of Olives. It was there that we read in verse 3 that as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, in this picture, him and his disciples sitting there overlooking the whole Temple Mount, a visual panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem and the Temple that sat there on top of that mount. The disciples were told, they came to Jesus privately at that moment saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. I want you to make note of that. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, Jesus says to them, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. 
And there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All of these, Jesus says, are the beginning of sorrows. I believe uh, what Jesus is telling his disciples had only believed in two things. They believed in the age that they were living now and the age to come. They only knew of the age that they were currently living in and the kingdom age that was to come. When Jesus was there making these statements, he's answering their questions of when will this happen? When will this time come that we'll see this whole thing dismantled and taken apart? When will it happen that you will come back and establish your kingdom here on earth? Jesus tells them that these are the birth pains. These are the beginning of sorrows that are going to come upon this world. Verse 9 says, and they will deliver you. And I want you to make a note here. I believe that Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the moment. I believe his reference here is to the nation of Israel specifically. You remember I've shared that the book of Revelation as a whole has a focal point of the nation of Israel. The Gentile nations are involved in the tribulation period, but God is fulfilling something in the nation of Israel during this time. He's fulfilling his promises and the covenants that he made to his people and that he was going to save a remnant of Israel. He goes on and he says, and they will deliver you, speaking of the Jews. Just think of what the disciples were thinking as Jesus was saying that to them. He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. There's another line that would be worthy of underlining. Many false prophets will arise and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures till the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom, there's that kingdom, will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus just gave them the timeline right there. He just gave them the whole timeline of what to look for, the signs to look for, and then the end will come. They're asking him, when will the end be? When will your return be? When will you establish your kingdom here on earth? Look what he says in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, where did we read that? He tells us the book of Daniel. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, we read that prophecy, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And so, in other words, this dual fulfillment First half of it was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. The second half of that prophecy of Daniel 9 is going to be fulfilled at the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. This is given as a timeline for the book of Revelation. Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is speaking again of the Jews. Who's in Judea at the time? It would be the Jews. Jews would be in Judea. They are going to flee once they see the Antichrist set up his image there in the third temple, the revived temple during the tribulation period. They're going to realize that they have been deceived by the deceiver at that point, the middle of the tribulation period, and they're going to flee there from Jerusalem to a place that God has prepared for them, a place of safety where God is going to keep them until the end of the tribulation period. It says, again, verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetops not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. In other words, when this comes down, 
You need to get out of town quickly. You need to flee for your life because the Antichrist is going to be on now on a plan to wipe out every Jew that he can get. The Antichrist and his armies. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days because it's going to be very difficult as you are fleeing from Jerusalem for your life. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, which everything just kind of shuts down on the Sabbath there. This is all Jewish. The disciples are hearing this and they're hearing exactly what Jesus is saying to them in this moment. For then there will be, look what he says in verse 21, great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be great tribulation that is going to come upon this earth. And unless those days were shortened, Jesus says, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake. The elect, I believe here, is speaking of the Jew. The Jews, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, here's the deception. Here's what we're going to read when we get into our text this morning. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or there, do not believe it, Jesus says. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, here it is again, even the elect. So I have told you beforehand, Jesus says, I'm telling you this up front. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert. Do not go out or look. He is in the inner room. Do not believe it. I believe the place where these Jews are going to flee to is the area known as Basra, or it's also known as Petra. I believe that the Jews are going to flee to this place that's there today. You can go take a tour there and go into Petra. You can go to Petra. I believe they're going to be preserved there from the attacks of the Antichrist, from his armies that are seeking to wipe them out. Just like when they were uh, in 70 AD, when 1.1 million Jews were killed by uh, Titus and his army, the Roman army, they're going to be again fleeing to this area of Petra. If you hear the deceive, the deceiver and the deception, if anyone says, look, here's the Christ, don't believe it. He's given them, he says, I'm telling you this ahead of time. If they say, look, he's in the desert, don't go out of your place. Don't leave your hiding place. Don't leave your place of security. Or look, he's in the inner room. Do not believe it. For as the lightning, listen to this, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And I believe that this is the first of the campaigns of battles. We all know the Battle of Armageddon, don't we? We've heard that. The Battle of Armageddon. Where I believe it's going to start is in this area of Petra, this area of Basra. When the Lord returns at the end, he's going to save a remnant of his people. At that, and he's going to come, and that is going to be the start of the battles that is going to finally end up at the Battle of Armageddon, at the, very, at the very end. But here we see, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then the carcasses and the eagles, that's carcass, the eagles really, there are vultures, probably by uh, a better translation, eating the flesh of those who are going to die as the Lord comes back at that time. And then look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven are going to be... This is at the end of the tribulation period. It looks and appears to me that there's going to be a complete darkness that's going to come over the face of the earth, and the heavens are going to be shaken. And then it says this in verse 30... 
Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Some believe that that's going to be in that pitch, utter darkness, the Shekinah glory of the Lord, piercing that darkness, coming back at that, at the end there, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect. There's that word again, and I believe it's the Jews. He's going to gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That, I believe, is going to be that remnant of Israel, that the remnant of God's people that he says, I'm going to save, not because they've been faithful to me, not because they've done everything that I've commanded them to do, but because of the covenants and promise I make, I am going to save a remnant of Israel. And God is going to do that at the end of the tribulation period. Israel being the focus in that seven-year tribulation period. I also want to remind us of the outline that I gave us for the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 19. John was instructed to write the things which you have seen, John, when he saw that vision of Christ. And then he said, was told to write the things which are, speaking about chapter 2 and chapter 3, which is the church age. We read of the seven letters to the seven churches. And then thirdly, the third part of that outline, which is for the rest of the book of Revelation, is write the things, John, which will take place after this. And we started that in chapter 4, verse 1, which I believe is the rapture of the church, that heavenly throne room, that heavenly scene that John was taken into. We saw in chapter 4 the throne and the one sitting on the throne. That's what John saw, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the lamps of fire burning before the sea of glass. He saw this heavenly scene. And then when we got into chapter 5, it, the, the focus went from the throne and the one sitting on the throne to the scroll that was in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We come to this chapter 6 this morning, which I believe is now the start of where God is going to begin to pour out his judgments upon this earth. The first set of judgments is called the seal judgments. There are three sets of judgments that are going to come upon this earth during the seven-year tribulation period. The first is what we're reading here in chapter 6. It's called the seal judgments. The next set of judgments is going to start in chapter 8. In verse 2, it's referred to as the trumpet judgments. The third uh, set of judgments, all of these having seven per, each one has seven different judgments. The last will be in chapter 16, which is referred to as the seven bowl or vile judgments. Three sets of judgments spanning all of the seven years and just being unfolded as it goes forward. The first six seals are in chapter six. And then when you get to chapter eight, verse one, when, that, when Jesus breaks the seal on the seventh seal on that scroll, it brings in the next set of judgments, which is the trumpet judgments. When you get to the last trumpet judgment, that last trumpet is what ushers in the next set of judgments called the vile judgments. And so they just go on through. Let me <clears throat> give you some observations about these three sets of judgments that I think are important for us. Why am I going to this length right now? Because you need to know these things. As we get into these judgments, it's going to be in, in, in our it's going to be horrific. When you hear 
the things that are going to come down upon this earth. First off, I believe that each of these judgments are going to happen in succession. In other words, they're not all going to happen at once. There's going to be one judgment, it's going to come to an end, and another one will follow. And that will come to an end, and another one will follow. So it's going to be successive <coughs> excuse me, judgments that are going to come. They're all in chronological order through the book of Revelation. Even though all of the book of Revelation is not all chronological, these judgments and how they're placed are chronological. And what we also see about these judgments, if you read the seal judgments where we're starting today, and then you go to the trumpet judgments, and then you go to the seal judgment, you'll see that they increase in intensity as they move along. We also, uh, through the book of Revelation, we're going to see that these judgments that we're reading about in, in this book are unlike any of the wars, any of the natural disasters, any of the famines that we have seen in our world in our lifetime. Sometimes people want to put everything happening in the book of Revelation as if, are we living in it now? Is this it now? But it's not. What we are going to see as we go through these uh, judgments that, that come upon this earth is that it's going to be far worse than what this world has ever seen nor ever will see, as we already read. We can also see that these judgments that are happening here are being orchestrated by God himself. These judgments are coming from the hand of God who is in heaven. We can see that the origin of these judgments first, as we already read in chapter 5, at first is the Lamb who is breaking the seals and unleashing the, the, the seal judgments upon this earth. Then we're going to see in chapter 8, verse 2, that it's the seven angels who are sounding forth these trumpets that are unleashing the next set of judgments upon this earth. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, it's going to be God himself who is instructing angels to pour out their bowls or their vials of wrath upon this earth. The tribulation period is going to be a time that I think that we could say is divine judgment. It's going to be a time of divine wrath, meaning that it's coming from God. Not to be confused with in the world you're going to have tribulation, for I, you know, uh, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Not to be confused with that. We will have tribulation in this world. But it's not the same tribulation that we read about when we read the book of Revelation. Judgment in the New Testament, it started at the cross of Jesus Christ for our sins. The judgment that was due us was placed upon the Son of God. The judgment of believers is also going to be something that is still future. That's believers and non-believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of the works that we have done in this life will one day be judged at the Bema seat of Christ. There's also going to be the, the judgment of nations in Matthew chapter 25 where the Gentile nations of this world are going to be judged before God. There's also the judgment of Israel before the millennial kingdom uh, begins, which is after the tribulation period. There's going to be the judgment of angels that we can read about in, uh, in our Bibles. And lastly, there's going to be the uh, great white throne judgment that is going to be for unbelievers that is going to happen after the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. And so we see judgment for sin, sin that has to be judged 
and will be judged by God because there is no other way. God must, if he's a righteous God, he must judge sin. He must judge unbelief. The tribulation period also needs to be seen as a time of God's wrath. Why do I make this point? Because, uh, thank you, oh, I'm dying. You saw me struggling. The tribulation period needs to be seen as a time of God's wrath. Uh, God's wrath being poured out upon the unbelieving nation of Israel and also upon the rejecting Gentiles throughout all history. A time of God's wrath. This word wrath that we find in our Bibles. In the book of Revelation, it's seen 10 times. And what it speaks about, one, is that the source, and all the occasions that you read this, that the source of this wrath is coming from God. That's an important point to understand, that the wrath that's coming upon this world will come upon this world. Its source is coming from God. The word wrath actually is the Greek word. There's actually two Greek words uh, in the book of Revelation. One is the Greek word orge. And that word orge is translated this way. Anger, vengeance, and indignation. That's what the word wrath means. The other is thumos. Thumos means, by definition in the Greek, hot anger fierceness and passion and so we read uh, in our Bibles look at your Bibles at chapter uh, Revelation chapter 6 in uh, verse 15 he says and the kings of the earth the great men the rich men the commanders the mighty men every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now that sounds to me like it's coming from the hand of God upon kings and everyone in this world. And they're saying, hide us from the face. Well, when is this happening? This is happening on the sixth seal of this chapter that we're in right now. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? To me, I don't mix up this wrath that we see in the book of Revelation with the tribulations that we experience in everyday life as a Christian. This is separate. If you look at uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 18, it says, uh, The nations were angry. And your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In uh, chapter 14 uh, or 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And then in verse 19 of chapter 16, we read. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. I think that we could say, and the last one is in uh, chapter 19, verse 15. Now out of his mouth, this is at the second coming of Jesus Christ, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, 
that with it uh, he shall strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That sounds to me nothing like in the world you're going to have tribulation. This is speaking of something yet future that is still going to come upon this earth. Here's the good news. You see why I want to start this out on perfect love casts out all fear? Because we don't sit here as believers going, wow, you know, we're not going to be here. Perfect love casts out all fear. We can trust and have confidence that these things are not going to be put upon us. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says this, and to wait for his son from heaven, that's what we're doing, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, they, those that don't know Christ, they already stand under the wrath of God and they don't even know it. But to those of us that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God has already and sees you already delivered from the wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, it tells us, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we shall live together with him. And then in Romans 5, 9, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That's the good news. If you know him as Lord and Savior, that's good news to your heart that he have been saved from wrath through him. We left chapter 5 with the four living creatures and the 24 elders falling down and worshiping the Lamb who lives forever and ever. And remember when we read our Bibles that there is no chapter breaks and no verse breaks. So when we leave chapter 5 and go into chapter 6, it's just like continue on reading. Look at your Bibles, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Now I saw... When the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering to conquer. That's the first of these seven seals that we're going to read about. One of the areas of debate by some in the book of Revelation has to do with the identity of the one who is on this horse. Some see this rider of the white horse as simply being a military conquest and it doesn't really have anything to do with an individual and a, a, a person. Others see this rider, and I don't know how they get this, but they see this rider as one who goes out proclaiming the gospel on a white horse. Others see this rider as Jesus Christ himself. And still others see the rider of this white horse in the breaking of the first seal as being the Antichrist who is riding this white horse, which is the view that I hold. I believe it's the Antichrist who is going out to what? Conquer to conquer. He's going out to deceive. And that's exactly what Jesus told them in Matthew 24. The first thing that he told them is to watch out that you are not deceived, is what he was telling them. We need to see the difference between the rider of the white horse in Revelation chapter 6 and the white horse that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. One, 
The writer is the Antichrist. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, the rider on the white horse is when the King of kings and Lord of lords returns in that day at the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 6, the Antichrist, he carries a bow and it doesn't appear that there's even an arrow in the board. Think of this this white horse and the one riding on it as being an instrument of deception. The peace agreement that is going to be made with the nation of Israel is going to happen through the Antichrist. That is going to be the starting point for the seven-year tribulation period. And so one is deceptive. In Revelation 19, Jesus on that white horse, we're told that, that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword where one has a bow, the other one has a sharp sword coming forth out of his mouth. In Revelation chapter 6, the Antichrist is wearing a Stephanos, the Greek word for a crown. But in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus is on that throne, he's wearing a diadem. He's wearing a kingly crown when he returns on that day. Remember that Satan and the Antichrist and everything is always about deception. It's always about appearance. It's coming as an angel of light, but he's really not. It's coming on a white horse, but he's really coming to deceive and to conquer, to conquer. In Revelation chapter 6, this white horse and the rider on it, he's initiating war. He's initiating war by himself. But when we read in Revelation 19 of Jesus Christ, he comes back in that moment to destroy his enemies and to bring an end to the war. One is going out to create war. The other one is coming back to end war. We also see in chapter 6 that this rider of this white horse, he commences the tribulation period, the Antichrist does, by making that pact with Israel, that seven-year agreement, that peace treaty that he makes with the nation of Israel. He comes on the scene. He commences the beginning of that 70th week of Daniel. But when you read of Jesus on the white horse in Revelation 19, he is the climax of the book of Revelation when he comes back at the end of the tribulation period as king of kings and lord of lords. Two different riders, two different horses, not to be confused with the same. It's been said that there are more than 100 passages of scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that describes the origin, the nationality, the character, the career, the conquest, and the doom of the Antichrist. It's all the way through Scripture. You can read it in the Old Testament. You can find many passages in the New describing what the Antichrist will be. It's real important, though, for us. There are people that uh, they try to figure it out all the time, don't they? Who's the Antichrist? You know, and you go on, actually, you go on and Google it. And then look at the pictures. You'll see all these different faces come up. You know, it was Bush one year, and then it was Obama another year. And the list goes on. You know, it's Nero, and it's, it's you know, all these different people throughout. Oh, they're the Hitler. They're the Antichrist. Everyone trying to figure it out. If Jesus wanted to know who it was, he would have told us. We just know what his characteristics are, who he is. And as a matter of fact, we're not even going to be here during that time as a church. Amen? We're not even going to be here, and so... We're just reading this for our own information, really, and what's to come so that we can communicate this truth to this world. The Antichrist, by name, is Antichristo in the Greek. It's used five times in the New Testament, and it's only used by the Apostle John. Apostle John used this in 1 John 2.18. He says... Uh, uh, speaks about the Antichrist. He says, uh, he speaks about the Antichrist in the singular form, but he also refers to it in the plural form. He says this, little children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that there are that as you have heard that the Antichrist, that singular, is coming. And even now many Antichrists, that's plural, have come by which we know that it is the last hour. What is the first thing that Jesus said in Matthew 24? Beware of deception. Beware of the deception. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. But it's really going to be deception upon Jew and Gentile during that time. But there are many antichrists in the world. There are many people that claim to be the Christ throughout all of history. But there is only one antichrist that is going to be during the tribulation period. Singular. There is the spirit of Antichrist that we read about in our Bibles. John said in 1 John 2.22, who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And so somebody can be an Antichrist by their denial even of who Jesus is. In 1 John 4.3, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Second John 1 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And so there are many that would be referred to as antichrist or the spirit of antichrist. But they are not the antichrist, which is going to make that seven-year treaty that's going to start off the seven-year tribulation period. Paul, he spoke about this coming man, the antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2.7, he says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, and that's how he's referred to, the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming at the end of the tribulation period. He's going to deal with the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet when he casts them, that says, alive into the lake of fire. Here's my essay of the Antichrist. We're drawing close, by the way. Uh, and they're not in any particular order, but this is what I would say of him to give you a description of who this person will be. He is able to deceive by miracles, signs, and wonders. He will sit in the temple during the tribulation and claim to be God. He will be a great orator. He will have a mouth that speaks great things. A mouth as of a mouth of a lion. He will mesmerize the world with his words. He will appear to have all the answers for this world's chaos and problems. He will establish a one-world economy, a one-world religion, a one-world government. His name adds up to 666. He makes a peace covenant with the nation of Israel. He causes men to worship Satan. He follow, his followers receive a mark on their forehead or their right hand. He will be crowned with ten horns. He is the beast out of the sea. He's called a king. He will be filled with the fullness of Satan. He will demand that he be worshipped. He will have a worldwide kingdom for the last three and a half years. He sits on a throne, has a bow in his hand, rides a white horse, has an army. He dies a violent death, is raised back to life again, has a false second coming, is part of the unholy trinity that consists of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and he will claim to be God. That's his ministry. That's what he will be doing in that seven-year tribulation period. 
Paul, he identifies him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, let no one, again, here it is, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition, he's called. Or the son of destruction is another way we could put it. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. So that he sits as God in the temple of God. Showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember, Paul says to the church there at Thessalonica. Do you not remember that I, when I was still with you. That I told you these things. And now you know what is restraining he, speaking about the Antichrist. Now you know what's restraining the Antichrist, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, notice the he there is capitalized. Only he who now restrains will do so until he, again it's capitalized, I believe a reference to the Holy Spirit in the church, in believers, until it says, um, uh, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And I believe it's the rapture of the church. When the church that houses the Holy Spirit inside of us is removed, Satan is going to have now full, now it's time to go forward. But we're hindering that, and it's in God's timing that we will be removed, raptured from this, and then the Antichrist is going to ride out as that horseman, that white horse, and going out to conquer, to conquer, and to deceive. And the lawless one, we're told, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It doesn't take much for God, does it? Just, you're gone. Satan, I mean, Satan, you're gone. Antichrist, you're a false prophet, you're done. In that day, we, we're almost done. Revelation 13, he will come to his end. He's going to, God's going to bring him to his end. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 13, then I stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, which is a name for Satan, the dragon gave him, speaking about the Antichrist, his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded. This is when the Antichrist is going to be uh, artificially killed. And his deadly wound was healed. And all of the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon. There's going to be this Satan worship during the tribulation period. Who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth that was speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. The second half of the tribulation period. And then lastly in Revelation 19.19. 19, we read, and I saw the beast. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together. To make war against him. Who sat on the horse. And against his army. And then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet. Who worked signs in his presence. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image. These two were cast into the lake of fire. Burning with brimstone. That deserves a cry. Praise the Lord. His end is already marked out. His end is already marked out in the Bible. The Antichrist, the false prophet, they're going to be cast alive 
into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Sounds to me like it's an individual. Individuals. Remember, I'm a literalist. When I read my Bible, I don't spiritualize it. I read it. It's what it says. It's what's going to happen, I believe. We're going to see next week. Lord willing, if we're still here. Next week, we're going to read the other three horsemen of the apocalypse. The next one is going to be the fiery red horse. The horse of war and conflict on the earth. And then the black horse, famine and scarcity on the earth. And then the last of the four horsemen, the pale horse, which is going to speaks, I believe, of widespread death that is going to follow on the earth. That's just the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Wait till we get into the trumpets and wait until we get into the vile judgments that we're going to see that God must, God will, God has to judge sin. And there's no better time for us as Christians to be looking up, to be readying ourselves for the Lord's return. If you don't feel like you're ready for his return right now, if he were to pierce the clouds right now and call us home in the rapture of the church and you were to stand, are you confident in your heart that you know him as Lord and Savior? Don't put it off. Don't think that you're all right. If you don't have that strong confidence, then be sure, don't leave this building today because we're not assured of tomorrow. And then there is not a second chance and if you're here and your relationship with Jesus Christ is not good right now, you're not walking right with the Lord, you need to maybe rededicate your walk with the Lord, commitment to Christ, come up and, and pray with somebody up here. Come and seek me out and pray. Or Kyle, look for somebody here and say, would you pray for me? I need your prayers right now. And we're here for one another. And so uh, let's have the worship team come up and close us in a song. Read ahead in your Bibles. I can't wait until next week to get into the rest of this chapter. And why am I excited about it, as terrible as it is? Because all of this is what Jesus said would come to pass. Uh, I, I have no fear in my own heart of the things that we're reading about and the things to come. I'm, I have strong confidence and great hope in my heart of what's to come. Father, I thank you, uh, Lord, for your church here. I thank you for each individual that came through the doors today. Lord, I believe in divine appointments. And Lord, I believe we're here, hearing a message today, Lord, from your word, Lord, that can speak into our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that each one that is here, Lord, contemplating their own relationship with you, Lord, that you would speak into their heart, Lord, what they need to hear, that they would hear and he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And so, Lord, that we would set our hearts right before you even this morning. That we would go out of this place today realizing, Lord, that time is short. And that we need to have our, our eyes fixed upon eternity, Lord. That we need to be looking for opportunity to be a witness for you. And, Lord, would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit even now. And we thank you for it. Jesus' name.